There are so many issues throughout all levels of government that smart Christians need to view it as a way to care for our neighbor by making good decisions. Molly Hemingway talking about her joint presentation with her husband, Mark, at the 2020 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. The federal government has gotten much more involved in family formation or family destruction, abortion, other issues. And, and there are so many ways in which it's important for us to think about how we can defend the weak and vulnerable among us by making good decisions. You can meet and hear journalist Molly and Mark Hemingway making the case for Christian political engagement at this year's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. The premier conference for Christian laity is Friday, June 12th and Saturday, June 13th in Chicago. Attendance is limited to 500. Learn more and register at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call 618-223-8385. The agrarian society lasted 3,000 years, and we could teach processes. I could teach anybody, even people in this room, so no offense intended, to, to be a farmer. You, it's a process. You dig a hole, you put a seed in, you put dirt on top, add water, up comes the corn. The information economy is fundamentally different. You have to have a different skill set. You have to have a lot more gray matter. That is Democratic presidential candidate Mike Bloomberg back in 2016, speaking at the University of Oxford. Of course, when you're running for president, people find all your YouTube videos and they comb them for everything you may have said. He claims he was not speaking about modern farming, but about ancient farming, that agrarian society that he referenced there. But many farmers have taken umbrage at what sounds like kind of an elitist view, just more of kind of the New York attitude toward the rest of the country. We're just the square state, sort of flyover country. And that we really don't have, as he says, the gray matter especially the farmers, to deal with a high-tech economy. What does Michael Bloomberg fail to understand about farmers today? Greetings and welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in on this Thursday afternoon, the 27th of February. Joy Pullman of The Federalist is going to join us to talk about Michael Bloomberg on farmers and high-tech. We'll discuss anti-American attitudes among young people and parents who are suing a Wisconsin school district over its transgender policy. A little bit later, we'll do listener email and the Issues Etc. comment line. Joy Pullman is a regular guest. She's managing editor of The Federalist and author of the book, The Education Invasion. Joy, welcome back. Hi there. Thank you. What does Mayor Bloomberg fundamentally misunderstand or fail to understand about the men and women who farm our fields here in America? Well, it sounded to me from his comments, honestly, like he has never visited a modern farm. And I'm really lucky. I have actually, in my family, my grandparents started a farm about a century to go that has uh, you know, been one of the lucky ones to persist. And in order to persist, it has had to get very advanced and, and rather large compared to, to older farms. So I happen, I mean, I've visited the places where people are real modern day farmers are doing their work a number of times. And I mean, they use things like literally drones to check on, <laughs> to check on their produce. Um, when I was a kid, I used to have to drive around with my dad in his pickup truck and I mean, really, I remember hating it so much, you know, a dad would just slip in. Oh, okay, we're just going to stop by the field, you know, to check on the irrigation equipment. But now my uncle can check on his irrigation equipment from his office and it is a GPS controlled. It's monitored by computers, which makes things a lot safer. I mean, 
We actually had a very tragic historic death in our family from the blow up of irrigation equipment. And now that circumstance doesn't have to happen because it can be checked on remotely. I mean, we and, and there's everything from tractors are controlled by GPS. Um, farmers can, you know, micro kind of micro target different areas of their fields with fertilizer, um, with pesticides, they can, you know, with water. And, and so agriculture today is mass produced, but it isn't like factory farming in that it is actually very, you know, down to the ground, to the very plant. They are tailoring the things that those specific plants are getting um, and, and the way that they're nurturing and taking care of them. In other words, it sounds like a farmer is like any other businessman. He wants to be able to harness the technology that is available to him to make the most of the resources that he has to work with. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and I mean, because I mean, if if a farmer, <laughs> if his plants aren't doing well, if his ground, if his earth isn't doing well, the farmer doesn't do well. So his success is directly tied with the quality of his land and how well he takes care of it. I mean, and I, I mean, I, I know, of course, there, there's bad actors in every industry, right? Just like, you know, there's, there's bad doctors, right? There's doctors who cheat people. There's farmers who cheat people, right? You know, we're, we're all sinners, but Overall, you know, farmers as, as, as a group very much care about the health of their land. They care about the long-term sustainability of their crops. They are not, you know, strip mining and pulling out nutrients from the earth. They are doing everything they can to make that field, you know, good for the next century and healthy and producing, you know, great crops, you know, for people at the lowest prices possible because that is the only way they can stay in business. Their profit margins are extremely small. They can't afford to make steaks or to, to offer a shoddy product. You also uh, talk a little bit about how the modern day farmers are very, very thrifty. They've always been thrifty and they've always Mm -hmm. been recycling (laughs) even before it was trendy to recycle. Farmers are kind of the original recyclers, but they take very seriously the issues that impact their environment, especially that environment around where they do their work. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you talked about farmers being originally thrifty, it made me think of my dad (laughs) and a lot of this is a farmer thing. You know, when every, any old tool or implement or something would, you know, get old and rusty, he'd keep it. And he, my dad didn't grow up during the recession, and we're sorry, the Great Depression or anything. But, you know, you if, if you kept those tools around, if you kept the equipment, even though it wasn't working, you could pillage it later, you know, to use to fix something else, to patch something else up. And that mentality, of course, for maybe my dad is a singular person, but I mean, I mean, the mentality also applies to farming today. Fertilizer costs a huge amount of money. Taking care of the seeds costs a huge amount of money. So they're not about to just waste them, right? They want to use them as in, in as precise a manner as, as they can and um, because that saves them money. And, and when they're saving money, they're passing that savings on to us. They can offer their products that are better at a lower cost. And that actually has led to, you know, over the past century, I mean, I didn't, I mean, I didn't, I wouldn't have known this if I didn't just kind of read up on this in general and and be interested in agriculture. But, you know, people used to spend the majority of their time and their labor and their money just getting food for themselves. Just a century ago, you know, the biggest thing, more than 50% of what, you know, people's work and their labor and their money would go into just paying for the food to put on their table to keep themselves alive. And nowadays, I think the figure is something around 15% of the average American's, you know, budget is spent on groceries. 
And I mean, I'm a mom. I have to buy a lot of food for a big family. (laughs) So it it feels like a lot when you're at the grocery store pinching your pennies. But in terms of historical perspective, our budgets are so much more free to buy so many other luxury, honest luxury items now than they used to be because we don't have to spend so much money on just keeping ourselves alive eating food. And that is directly related to the scientific revolution in agriculture where farmers today are able to get good food to us for so much less money. I think this probably wouldn't have gotten the traction that it did, this comment by Mayor Bloomberg, unless it had come in the context of kind of the general East Coast attitude toward the rest of the country, that we're just kind of these Trump-supporting rubes that live out with the hayseed sticking out of our mouth and, you know, baseball caps (laughs) on our head, yeah. driving beat up pickup trucks. And we don't know what we're doing. Not only we don't want to doing in supporting someone like Donald Trump, we just don't know what we're doing, period. What are your thoughts there? Right. I mean, there is absolutely an element of kind of cultural conflict here. And some of that I think is overplayed, but I think some of it actually is legitimate. I mean, again, if, if Michael Bloomberg had ever even done like a tour of a farm, <laughs> he wouldn't have made those comments because they're so obviously untrue from anyone who's had a lick of experience. He doesn't have to be an actual, you know, digging in the dirt farmer, you know, to, to, to know, to have known that. So clearly he's just had zero encounter with that, which is actually surprising given that he was the mayor of New York city. And, and I mean, obviously not the city, but you know, that the state of New York is a very large agricultural state. You would think someone would have clued him in at some point, but apparently not. The other thing is I haven't ever really personally, you know, done any large scale farming myself. But I have I am an avid hobbyist gardener. And so even, even, you know, though I haven't been out on a GPS tractor, I haven't driven a drone. Anyway, just in trying to keep up my yard and grow a few tomatoes, you know, I know it's not just as easy as he, he said, you just dig a hole, you dump the seeds and you cover it up and it grows. <laughs> I wish it were that easy. You know, I'd have a great garden every year. So, I mean, not only has he not, you know, visited a major portion of American industry, but he also has just no normal person contact with the earth, which I guess isn't, I guess maybe also not surprising because he's, you know, mega, you know, multi-billionaire. Maybe he he must maybe have a personal garden or, you know, never stuck a seed in the dirt in his life. But uh, there is a bigger story underneath that, which is that if if you're going to have someone try to be basically, you know, in charge of you, governing you, someone that we the people elect to govern us. And they have very serious ignorance about, you know, millions of Americans take care of their own lawns, grow their own gardens, you know, not to mention, you know, that agriculture is is a crucial part of American industry and its history. And to have that ignorance of such a very large portion of the people you seek to govern it makes me a little nervous about your ability to be very good at governing us. And I think that is true of a lot of other voters who live in places where I've lived and have been in places I've been in. And I don't know if you, your listeners are familiar with a sociologist named Charles Murray, but a couple of years ago, he put out what he called his bubble quiz that demonstrated that the sort of people who are what we call nowadays our ruling class, they have extremely little contact with, you know, half of the country that they want to impose their ideas about government and culture on, and they just don't have any experience that would teach them that their ideas really don't fit the real world. And so when you have the rulers and the ruled separated by such a large cultural and experiential difference, it is a real social problem 
Um, it creates a lot of animosity that wouldn't be there, you know, frankly, if the, the ruling class were more humble and more grounded. Who is telling him to continue to defend Castro, to continue to defend the Sandinistas, to continue to defend the Soviets? It, I, it doesn't play well in Charleston. Right. So the politics are clear uh, that it's not necessarily the case that uh, Castro uh, will do well uh, <laughs> with help one at the polls. That there are particular segments of folks who fought the battles of the 1960s and held particular positions around the revolutions around the world, particularly those revolutions that were about decolonization, right? Fighting back against right. the West. So there's that. So, and I think so he's got that 2% on his side. All right. What well, does he do with the other It might be. It might be. It, the other 98%, what he should do is say, what... What is it about the campaign for literacy that was valuable? What is it about uh, the doctors that went around the world, for, that Cuba sent around the world to help in the Caribbean? In other words, what I value is that everybody should have a good education. Everybody should have health care. Everyone should be able to but, not only but, dream dreams, but make those dreams a reality. The problem is, though, he has, he has an affinity, and you look at the tapes, he has an affinity for these communist dictatorships. That's Joe Scarborough speaking with Eddie Gloud, Jr., chair of the Department of African-American Studies at Princeton University about Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders and his affinity for communist regimes. Joy, what did you make of that exchange? Well, it was a really interesting exchange, and I actually think there's a, a couple of things that are really notable about it. And one of them is that the panelist that Joe Scarborough is talking about literally was running the, the communist propaganda line from the Cold War about how all these nations in basically mostly Eastern Europe and a number of Asian nations as well were quote-unquote freedom fighters defending themselves against Western colonialism, which is just a flat-out communist propaganda lie. Those were proxy wars against the West, and they were instigated and funded by communists with the goal of overthrowing, ultimately, the United States. So there's that issue, which, I, I, I mean, I, most Americans, if you're, especially if you're younger, and aren't aware of that subtext and the resurgence of that kind of just straight-up propaganda line, especially from someone at one of our nation's elite universities speaking to has a very broad platform from MSNBC. That's a little scary. But the thing that I talked most about in my article was actually Joe Scarborough's lack of knowledge about where the American people are in the state of our education institutions and how a very large, it's, it appears to be a minority, but it's a large 30 to 40 percent minority of Americans who, according to polls, think America is an evil, sexist, racist nation. They don't think America is great. And concurrent with those sorts of strong biases against America, their own country, and the West, very large numbers of Americans have very little knowledge about the actual institutions of their own country. They, they can't name the rights that the First Amendment guarantees. They can't name all three branches of government. They can't name, you know, Supreme Court justices. Just basic, what I would consider fourth, fifth grade level civics knowledge the majority of Americans don't have. And, and it's no accident that both of those are happening at the same time. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about a Wisconsin set of parents that are suing the second largest school district in that state for that school's transgender policy. The policy itself will shock you. I think you will understand why the parents are so outraged they're willing to go to court to have their children properly cared for and themselves properly informed Stay tuned.
week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we'll study, My kingdom is not of this world. Behold the man, we have no king but Caesar. It is finished, and not one of his bones will be broken. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, as we continue our walk through St. John's Gospel on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Your daily verse-by-verse Bible study on demand at thewordendoors.org and on the Lutheran Public Radio app. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. We love our on-demand listeners. You're listening to Issues Etc. Looking for a foreign language program that will revolutionize your students' vocabulary knowledge and their understanding of grammar? How about a program that teaches critical thinking skills, too? Look no further than Memoria Press's Latin curriculum. Students of all ages can use these Latin study programs. Give your students the gift of Latin today. To order, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next order by using the coupon code LPR20. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. If there was a pill I could give you that would make you immortal, how much would you pay for it? Pastor Jonathan Fisk, author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month, Without Flesh. Because you see, that's exactly what we have. And it's priceless, but it's also free. So why is it that nobody's coming to our churches to get this immortality? I mean, we can say that it's all their fault, or maybe there's something about it that we've forgotten. Learn more and purchase Without Flesh at issuesetc.org. Here's what Issues Etc. regular guest Pastor Brian Wolfmiller had to say about Jonathan Fisk's latest book called Without Flesh. To a church cowering in the corner, Pastor Fisk's Without Flesh bursts into the room with a dazzling light. It rallies us. It emboldens us. Don't be afraid. This is my body. This is my blood. These words of Jesus still stand true. The church finds her life in hearing these words and eating this flesh. You can find out more about this book from Pastor Jonathan Fisk, Without Flesh, at our website, issuesetc.org. Or you can call Concordia Publishing House and ask for the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, Without Flesh, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. Joy, tell us what's happening in Wisconsin, the second largest school district, and what they've been doing with Wisconsin parents' children? Well, I guess the major aspects of this story come down to two points, and only one of them is basically being charged by a group of 14 parents in a lawsuit. So the first point is that um, Madison Public Schools, the second largest district, is in charge of almost 30,000 children ages 3 through 19 in the state. They have, I mean, their curriculum is, is just basically, you know, openly LGBT, I would even say evangelism. The district not only, you know, suggests and encourages, uh, suggests that teachers use um, LGBT picture books and other kind of gender identity propaganda in classrooms, it actively encourages them to do so and not 
specifically in, in sex ed classes, you know, that start kind of later now, but we're talking it's in preschool with picture books, teaching, you know, just false views of, of what men and women are and what sex means and, and what a family is to children as young as three years old. So and you can see all of that online. They're not hiding it if you take a look at their curriculum. So on the one hand, the district is openly evangelizing uh, basically LGBT ideology. And on the second hand, the, the parents' lawsuit challenges, they have a stated written policy that was influenced by major LGBT advocacy organizations that are working to get this across in the schools across the United States. And in fact, have managed to get it statewide in California, New Jersey, and New York so far. The school district has a policy also of hiding from parents all information about their kids related to gender identity confusion. So kids' medical records, you know, parents are supposed to legally have access to all the information about their children and their children's file. Well, the Madison Public Schools does not put a child's, you know, decision to change his or her name or pronouns or gender identity in the child's file on purpose to hide that information from parents. So the parents sue to stop the policy of keeping them in the dark about what's happening with their kids. And another important part of this policy, it doesn't have an age limit. It could go, you know, down to, again, to the three-year-olds. If the child says, I'm Sally, and all of a sudden I want to be called Sam at school, but don't tell my parents, the school district will respect that no matter how old the child is. So do you expect there to be any kind of fruitful outcome of this legal action? Do you expect the school district to budge? Well, I contacted the school district to see what their response was. Basically, their answer was, we'll see you in court. <laughs> they stand behind the policy that's, quote, you know, from that the spokesman sent me from the school district. And so it's, of course, court cases do. It's going to take a couple of years to see what Wisconsin courts say about this case. The trajectory in courts is not very good for this issue, especially in Wisconsin, Wisconsin is the location of a case that went all the way up to the Supreme Court, was rejected at the Supreme Court, um, with the, the Seventh District Federal Court requiring now all schools in the states that are overseas, so that would be Wisconsin, Michigan, Indiana, and Illinois, I believe, that they have to admit boys to girls' bathrooms and locker rooms and vice versa. So the, the parents are not suing over bathroom, the bathroom issue, which also is you know happening in Madison, of course. They're just suing over the right to be able to see if their child is gender confused and trying to hide it from them at school. I'm curious about whether or not this is not just occurring in, well, Madison is a notoriously kind of liberal Mm -hmm. town, so it may not be typical. Is it happening elsewhere? Absolutely. I mean, and again, this is one of those things, transgender LGBT activists are doing this on purpose, doing this without notifying parents on purpose. The usual story from, you know, when when any of these sorts of things blow up in the news in any sort of town, I don't actually, I'm, I'm trying, I'm racking my brain trying to think, almost never were the parents informed beforehand given the opportunity for informed consent. It's always after the kids have been damaged, have been told lies. Then the parents find out about it from kids going home and crying or asking questions um, or whatever the case may be. Rarely are parents given informed consent about what their kids are going to encounter in class on this issue before it happens. So what they're left doing is having to mop up with their kids after the fact, when, of course, in many of these kids are extremely little. I mean, we've had 
I mean, in medicine and, and in other cases around the country, we're talking kindergartners and preschoolers. So it's not, I mean, I don't know. You've had kindergartners and preschoolers, Todd. I have them too. You know, you can't really have a constructive, full-length conversation about this issue with them. They're just so little, it's not even possible. So your ability to do damage control is constricted by the activist's choice to do this under deception. So the organizations that Madison explicitly... So Madison is one of many school districts that have given over their policymaking to unelected, uncontrolled, you know, untransparent private organizations this case, it happens to be LGBT activists, but just imagine how crazy people on the left would go if, for example, you know, a school district's sex education curricula was controlled by a local crisis pregnancy center. You know, they they would lose their minds and call, you know, say that was completely unfair and unbiased. But of course, the ratchet only goes one way. They are perfectly fine with GLAD, you know, the human rights campaign, major LGBT activist groups being in control of what your kids learn and making sure that you don't hear about it first. They're consulting with school districts across the nation as well as, you know, literally those organizations now control the curriculum in in California, New York, and New Jersey under new statewide laws. And they're putting this information in all classes, English class, math class, science class, are going to include the social justice, LGBT-influenced curriculum. It's not just a sex ed class anymore, and that's by design. With about a minute, Joy, will these policies artificially inflate the numbers of children with gender dysphoria? The short answer is we don't know, but probably. And that's because little children are, and, 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 you know, all people are very peer-influenced. That's not just a speculation We do have some research indications that especially LGBT, even gay identification is in some senses, especially if it's done quickly in in groups of kids, which is something that's happening. It's called a social contagion. Um, And that has been a, a part of the entire trans movement, you know, that's been sweeping the country. And so research, for example, from Brown University finds that in environments that are more social justice oriented, where you are given kind of more peer points more social points and positive affirmation for identifying as something other than heterosexual, then the kids are much more likely to, you know, well, big surprise, you know, to do what they are given positive peer and teacher and and authority figure reinforcement for doing. So it's too early to really tell how long that effect lasts. But as far as we can tell right now, the culture of a school absolutely has an effect on whether kids are going to call themselves, group themselves into the LGBT kind of continuum. Joy Pullman is managing editor of The Federalist. She's author of the book, The Education Invasion. You can purchase this book and read Joy's columns on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. Joy, thank you very much. Thank you. We'll be going through listener email, that email address, talkback at issuesetc.org, and the Issues Etc. listener comment line, 618-223-8382, next.
Listen to the best of the church's music for the season of Lent at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the season of Lent, LutheranPublicRadio.org. Risen Savior Lutheran Church, Baser, Kansas. Located just right outside the northwest corner of the metro Kansas City area. We have a growing congregation of people who come from over 13 different communities to see what God is doing here, who desire to only believe, teach, confess, and practice as a church always has. Risen Savior, Baser, Kansas. Check out our website, risensaviorlcms.org. Many Lutheran pastors outside of the U.S. receive little or no seminary education. Luther Academy provides theological triage through conferences, books, and journals. Help support Luther Academy by making a tax-deductible donation at lutheracademy.com or call 260-452-2211. Serving Lutheran pastors to the ends of the earth. Luther Academy, 260-452-2211 or lutheracademy.com. This is Dr. Russell Dawn, President of Concordia University Chicago, with a message for parents, grandparents, and godparents of college-bound children. Concordia Chicago is a distinctive, comprehensive university of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. We're devoted to our Lutheran confession and committed to strong academics. Please encourage your child, grandchild, or godchild to check out Concordia University Chicago at cuchicago.edu. Essential Exercise for the Christian Mind. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Catalina Lutheran, Tucson, Arizona. Glory of Christ Lutheran, Plymouth, Minnesota. Holy Shepherd Lutheran, Haslett, Texas. Lord of Life Lutheran, Chesterfield, Missouri. Our Redeemer Lutheran, Emmett, Idaho. Redeemer Lutheran, Fairhope, Alabama. St. John Lutheran, Champaign, Illinois. St. Paul Lutheran, Chatfield, Minnesota. Trinity Lutheran, Fredericktown, Missouri. And Zion Lutheran, Gwinner, North Dakota. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support, Donate, and print the one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the radio, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal.